slash afternoon. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. Broadcasting from the heart of Global China Africa Research, Washington, D.C., I am your host, Winslow Robertson. I will be joined by the industrious Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, are you enjoying your Martin Luther King Jr. holiday? I am indeed. It's been a wonderful opportunity to reflect on um, socioeconomic and race relations here in America. <laughs> it's always a wonderful opportunity to reflect on those issues. Although the sun has just come out. So I know, you, that's wonderful. Do, We've do been ha- needing sunlight. <laughs> do you have any plans to actually leave your home today? Possibly later this evening. I might go out and spend some time with some friends. Okay, great, great to hear. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated on the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. Last episode had Thomas Wheeler explain some of the broader issues of Chinese engagement with South Sudan. This episode will have us look specifically at the history of that engagement. Lending us his expertise is Dr. Daniel Large, Assistant Professor at Central European University and the Director of the Sudan Open Archive. He completed his PhD at the University of London School of Oriental African Studies. His thesis, Fantastic Invasions, Intervention and the Politics of the International Sudan, looks at the international community's relations with Sudan and how it reacted to Chinese engagement with the country. He has also published a number of books and articles, such as a co-edited volume with Chris Alden, the famous Chris Alden, and Ricardo Sores de Oliveira. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, And the name of this co-edited volume is China Returns to Africa, a Continent and a Rising Power Embrace. And it was published by Hearst Publishers and Columbia University Press. He also wrote a number of pieces that uh, appeared in in journals ranging from the China Quarterly to African Affairs. He also wears extremely stylish glasses. Dr. Large, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be with you. Could you tell us a little bit more about your your background and and maybe some of the other projects you're you're involved with or some of your other publications? Certainly, yes. Um, I guess I have a mixed background originally working, uh, studying and living in China and then moving to East Africa to conduct doctoral research and continue working uh, from about 10 years ago. Um, One of the organizations I work with still is called the Rift Valley Institute, which is an independent uh, research organization founded in Sudan actually in 2001 and currently working in about seven countries in Eastern and Central Africa. Uh, The aim of the Institute is really to connect local knowledge uh, with social and political action Uh, And my role within the Institute is to uh, help direct the Sudan Open Archive, which is a digital online open access resource providing free uh, access to all sorts of information about Sudan and South Sudan. That sounds like a tremendous, tremendous uh, project. What what sort of what sort of sources do you do you share? What, What kind of things are on that archive? 
Well, we have a rich array of different sources. A lot of them are historical, uh, going back in time to the British period uh, in Sudan, including the then premier journal called Sudan Notes and Records. But part of the intention of the archive was really to rescue and render accessible uh, different layers of literature produced by uh, international aid interventions in Sudan over the years. So we have a lot of uh, those types of reports and the accumulated knowledge of various uh, actors in Sudan uh, over a long period of, of time. We also have official documents, copies of peace agreements, uh, photographs, a film, and various other multimedia resources uh, as well, making it quite a, a complete package. And it's still an expanding resource. We try to add uh, material as and when possible. We also try to disseminate this locally in different parts of Sudan and South Sudan, uh, of course, uh, and trying to make this as accessible as possible to Sudanese generally speaking. Uh, finally, for those of you interested in matters historical, uh, there is a film uh, with an energy digitizer in Juba with the South Sudan National Archive uh, as well, again trying to uh, preserve uh, the written history of South Sudan and make it accessible uh, to South Sudanese and people around the world as well. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I am... Definitely, definitely, definitely gonna gonna check this out after after the pod today. Um, but I I love these sorts of open access digital archives things. Uh, like they're always super interesting to me. Likewise, I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> um, well, could could you speak a little bit about what brought you to China and then what brought you to uh, East Africa? Well, I was just um, looking for uh, a good way to spend my time before university, and China was by far the most exciting country of any uh, that it was possible to go to. So I went out uh, as an 18-year-old uh, English teacher. Teacher is perhaps an exaggeration. You know, we were plunged into the deep end, and we kind of had to learn on the job. But I had a fantastic uh, time uh, in southeast China, uh, starting in... September 1994 and continuing into 1995. Um, I enjoyed it so much. Uh, I went back to become a student in uh, Shandong in Qingdao as well for a year, uh, studying language and traveling around the country. Um, so I was able to get experiences a different part of China. And I suppose it was meeting people from uh, the parts of China that I'd lived in, in different parts of Eastern and Southern Africa, uh, that first made me interested in uh, what was obviously a globalizing phenomenon of, of China's expanding connections with and influence in uh, different parts of the African continent. And what started as a hobby or an initial side interest, I suppose, has uh, mainstreamed into quite a major research interest. And of course, with that has come a significant uh, change in the prominence of China's relations with Africa, such that it's now quite a salient uh, big deal. That is phenomenal. That's, that's really interesting stuff. As a former English teacher, quote-unquote, in China myself, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, all right, well, we're, we're going to move on. Uh, today's episode will have Dr. Large talk about the history of China slash Sudan and South Sudan relations and what those relations might mean for South Sudan's current conflict. I would like to note that we had invited South Sudanese and Chinese guests for this episode as well, but things did not work out. I do not want us perceived as a bunch of foreigners lecturing about an African country. Now, without 
further ado, could you talk about Chinese-slash-Sudanese relations from 1956 to 1989, or even in the 19th century? Absolutely. Um, before I do that, it's probably worth noting that uh, the word history perhaps turns uh, a lot of people off and is seen as being irrelevant or necessary prelude to what's happening today. Present is a very active force in terms of the dynamics of the conflict uh, right now. But this is very true again in, in China's relations with the continent, including its individual states and in all different levels as well. Uh, Sudan provides one of the most uh, interesting and colorful examples of this importance of history, uh, I think, and there are many reasons why that's the case. Uh, but again, we should ask ourselves uh, how we interpret history and just uh, how historical narratives are mobilized uh, for political purposes today. I'd also said, say that perhaps we're talking about very different histories as well. Uh, there are many different interpretations of this. And above all, uh, the difference with, say, uh, China-Sudan relations in 1959, which is when diplomatic relations were first established, and China's relations with Sudan today and South Sudan today as well, reflect a fundamental change in terms of China's relations uh, with both countries. Um, clearly, there's been a, a historic transformation uh, and China's gone from a position of relations with to quite consequential involvement within uh, these countries. So a very different kind of history has emerged uh, since 1989 um, and the National Islamic Front coup uh, that happened in that year that really precipitated the events that saw uh, China's entry into Sudan's oil sector uh, in 1995. Um, the, the, the historical side is, is, I think, very interesting and is often overlooked. Um, perhaps rightly, I've tried to suggest, uh, perhaps wrongly. Um, and again, if we're to think about this history, um, it becomes quite interesting in terms of uh, current South Sudan relations with China. Why? Well, because I think China-Sudan history uh, historically uh, reflected the dominance of, of Northern Sudan's relations with China. Uh, and this can be seen very clearly in terms of the historic mythology uh, of Sudan's China relations. Well, what, what is this um, mythology, if, if, uh, if you wouldn't mind expounding on that? Well, Sudan and China are united by the unique um, ultimate anti-hero uh, who is uh, General Chinese uh, Gordon. Uh, he, uh, as an English engineer turned officer, uh, made his name uh, fighting for the Qing dynasty in China against the Taiping uh, rebellion. And then his legend was really confirmed through his career in the Sudan, culminating in his death in Khartoum in 1885 at the hand of Mahdist uh, rebels at the time. So because in some senses he was seen to have been complicit in uh, British imperialism, both in uh, China in different ways, but also in, in the Sudan, uh, he provides an unlikely but spectacularly colorful uh, common connection between the two. And so it's unsurprising that he's been used consistently by Chinese and Sudanese statesmen over the years, particularly since Zhou Enlai visited Khartoum in 1964, when he used this phrase that uh, it was the Sudanese people who had finally punished uh, General Gordon for his career. So uh, in Gordon, uh, all sorts of uh, protagonists from Sudan and China 
have always found uh, somebody that can unite them and provide a, a common source. Uh, again, an example of how history uh, is used in the present for distinctly uh, present political purposes uh, as well. That is that is absolutely absolutely fascinating, and um, and and in both terms of, of of historical events, I mean the 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 Taiping the Taiping Rebellion, or Civil War, or however you want to, want to call it, and fighting on the side of the Qing. I mean, is a very very interesting interesting figure, um, uh, Chinese. Chinese Gordon, it's and and Joe and Lai's invocation of him. I, I remember when I when I was studying um, China Africa relations in the '60s. I remember coming across that that quote from Joe and Lai, and I um, and I, and I definitely smiled when when reading that. Um, I thought that was a very very interesting invocation of of past for present needs. Um, well, I, I mean, I'm oh, sorry. Yes, no, no, absolutely. Um, and I think you could probably take another example of that as well, which is uh, a comparison between the European colonial fantasies of uh, developing uh, Central Africa, including Sudan in the 19th century, and, and what happened, what's been happening more recently in the continent, albeit in a very, very different context as well. So one of the other striking aspects of, of European fantasies, I suppose, about uh, in the language of the time opening up and uh, exploiting Sudan was um, that Chinese labor could be harnessed to productive ends in order to <laughs> effectively promote more effective European uh, resource extraction uh, purposes. So uh, as the then governor of what was the, a new Egyptian province of Equatoria, Emin Pasha, uh, said he actually was trying to persuade the Belgians to import uh, Chinese laborers uh, in order to, in his words, uh, provide a better nucleus for the colonization of Africa than any number of Indian elephants and iron-clad steamers. So what you had then, uh, in some sense, is this idea of China being the solution to uh, economic uh, purposes, uh, really is, is quite uh, similar to, albeit very different from, <laughs> in other words, uh, the types of development debates that we saw uh, in Africa, certainly in the 1990s. In other words, 100 years after uh, Chinese labor was invoked as a solution to Egyptian government uh, Sudan's problems, uh, it was of, of, of development dreaming by other country as well. So there are these historical precedents, again, for some of the grander uh, development schemes that have been promoted, including most recently uh, through Chinese means. Wow. Um, that's that's uh, uh, an incredible anecdote. Mo most, of the, um, most of the dreams of Chinese labor that I remember reading about were, were Southern Africa and, and East Africa. So to go with the, the Pasha over there, a r really cool story that I hadn't heard before. Um, well, uh, all right. Let's let's take it let's take it to to the fifties through the eighties. Um, wh what did Sudan mean to China during this period, and and why did the 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 National Islamic Front coming into Sudan matter? Okay. Well. Uh, Sudan was actually the fourth uh, African uh, country to establish diplomatic relations with China in Africa. So that's not insignificant uh, and is not forgotten in official uh, Chinese pronouncements, including those made at the Golden Jubilee 
jubilee anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations in 2009. Um, remember, China at the time was isolated in UN, and this was quite a significant gesture of, of friendship uh, at the time. Um, but between the between 1959 uh, and the 1980s, um, you see quite significant relations, but of a particular kind uh, that never really had any serious consequences within uh, Sudan at the time. So you have limited trade, uh, mainly resting on cotton uh, and various uh, prestigious sort of development aid gestures, such as the construction of a conference venue uh, in Khartoum. You had also limited educational exchanges or, or cultural uh, agreements as well, including quite an interesting history of uh, official Islamic uh, exchanges uh, as well. Um, China always backed the government in Khartoum, uh, including during the Anyanya uh, civil war, which ended in 1972. And by and large, uh, this is a period when uh, China's commitment to its policy of non-interference largely resonated with its actual uh, relations with the government in Sudan. Uh, at times, actually, it, it did threaten to intervene uh, to support uh, the government, but by and large, uh, this was a, a close connection. Interestingly, uh, it was the Chinese government's very adroit management of the attempted communist coup against President Nimeri in Khartoum that really carried favor uh, with the government in Khartoum and really uh, enabled a, a flourishing period of, of China-Sudan connections uh, in the 1970s. The context of this was, of course, the Sino-Soviet uh, dispute uh, and, and China's competitions with the Soviet Union for influence uh, in Africa. Um, but it's really in the 1970s that we see uh, a more involved Chinese role in Sudan, uh, including something that's been reactivated recently, the succession of Chinese medical teams uh, to different parts of Sudan and South Sudan um, as part of uh, China's sort of humanitarian or, or development relations uh, with the country. Um, again, towards the end of the 1970s, uh, trade relations expand and uh, various other aid projects are uh, promoted. But of course, the 1980s itself was relatively quiet. Uh, this is a time when in Sudan, of course, you have a combination of uh, political demise. Uh, it goes from boom to bust, huge economic crisis. You have the onset of famine. You have the onset of war in 1983. But because China isn't really very uh, involved within Sudan in the terms of developed interests. Uh, it's not that affected by the onset and then the deepening of civil war uh, from 1983. So at this period in Sudan's history, it's actually uh, American and French uh, multinational companies that are targeted by the southern uh, insurgent rebels. Uh, today, of course, it was CNPC uh, that had to evacuate its staff quite quickly uh, from South Sudan uh, after the 15th of December 2013, but in 1983, it was the workers of Chevron and Total that were attacked, some were actually killed uh, by southern rebels, and they had to evacuate. Uh, so China's interests weren't directly in the line of far, fire, very much reflecting this involved, but um, also slightly disengaged uh, official uh, relations. Um, so 1989, finally then, really marks the turning point. Uh, this is the, the Islamic coup. Uh, this is the start of, well, not exactly the start, but initiates a series of events that sees the isolation of Sudan uh, and various international sanctions being placed upon the country, which is suffering from a combination of 
continued deepening economic crisis, but also political instability as well. As well. So it's actually the unintended consequences of American-led efforts to isolate Sudan in the form of sanctions and various other forms of regional pressure as well that unintentionally opens up the country uh, to China's uh, oil investment. Um, and the rest, of course, naturally is history. Um, but I think this shows that China's relations with Sudan have never been of an independent bilateral kind. It's always reflected Sudan's wider foreign relations at any given time, uh, most importantly in terms of recent interests uh, after 1999 and particularly after uh, 1995. Um, speaking of 1995, I think that was when the China National Petroleum Corporation um, started operations in Sudan. But that was also a year after the Chinese Development Bank and the China Import and Export Bank was founded. Um, is there a connection between CNPC's going out happening, happening exactly a year after these banks were formed? Um think so in, in, in some ways, but I think in other ways uh, it's relatively early days, uh, clearly. Um, and this points to the significance of Sudan for CMPC's overseas oil interests. This is a very important uh, theme. Uh, the initial uh, brokering uh, of this particular deal um, was, of course, uh, President Bush himself, who actually visited Beijing in, in uh, the uh, meeting with President, then uh, that really results in the deal that provides for a reduced rate uh, Chinese loan, um, and this of course followed um, Sudanese interest in China's involvement in the oil industry in various sort of forms of outreach and and pre-positioning. Um, but I think in terms of those new developments in, in terms of China's uh, policy banks and funding opportunities, they, their significance came a bit later. And in some senses, these developed uh, in tandem. Uh, one didn't lead to the other. It was more the political processes uh, behind uh, the oil deal that actually was, was the driving force uh, then. You did see, uh, however, these institutions play a role more or less from the beginning, uh, particularly at the end of 1995, when there was an Exim Bank uh, agreement with uh, the Bank of Sudan pretty much to finance uh, oil development. And that's when uh, CMPC started uh, its initial oil operations in Block 6 um, and then uh, continued uh, you know, to, to expand thereafter. Just other, one other point I'd like to make on this uh, in terms of the difference between um, sort of perceptions of, of the history of, of China's role in Sudan and what actually happened. A lot of people assume or think that because Sudan was off limits uh, to Western major oil companies, uh, it was somehow a cakewalk uh, for Chinese oil companies just to enter and get what they wanted. Actually, they had to overcome quite significant uh, oil competition in order to get the significant oil contracts from 1997. So um, it was always a negotiated, mutually beneficial partnership between the National Islamic Front-run government of Sudan uh, and CMPC uh, supported by uh, the, the government of China. But there were always other actors um, and they had to uh, fight quite hard in order to get these significant oil con contracts for the other more lucrative uh, oil blocks, uh, blocks one, two and four, and then later uh, blocks three and seven as well. So in other words, you've always had an element of, of competition and politics behind all of these ostensibly economic uh, forms of exchange. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for, for, for pointing that out. And that's something that is not often uh, remarked upon. A lot of people just think, oh, the Chinese, in, you know, the scary Chinese come in, take or, or set something up with, with no problems and, and, and kind of allied over the sometimes very significant challenges different um, Chinese actors face when operating in country, when operating with a government, when operating with locals on the ground. Um, so thank you so much for pointing that out. I, I wanted to add, what was the significance of the CMPC's 1995 deal with the Sudanese government? It, while a lot of the current China-Africa relationship does have a strong component of resource extraction, China's oil industry is notorious for connecting Chinese foreign policy with the wealth of high-ranking members of the Chinese Communist Party. Were CMPC's initial moves in Sudan oil-related, wealth-creating-related, some combination of both? Right. Uh, this is an interesting question, particularly given recent uh, political uh, trends in, in China, of course. Uh, in the oil industry and, and the security establishment, uh, particularly. Um, I think uh, this was a stage in the evolution of, of China's oil industry that uh, saw Sudan play an early role in what later became the global strategy. Um, so the company, I think, was looking out for overseas uh, investments and beginning to dip its water into interna serious international um, commitments. Um, so it was a combination of, of sort of necessity of opportunism, uh, very much driven by uh, corporate interests with the support of the state. Uh, at this time, interests more or less aligned. Uh, they would diverge later over DIFOR in terms of uh, tensions between corporate interests of the company and then the state interests of the Chinese government. But at this stage, uh, there was a sort of mutual symbiosis. And indeed, the politics of the Chinese state very much worked to facilitate the activities of the company in terms of its entry into an expansion within Sudan's oil sector. But this was absolutely a case of profits in command. The added bonus for the company, I think, was that Sudan provided a testing ground, a laboratory for it to develop its own technology and kind of learn on the job about how you do oil overseas. So uh, Sudan has quite an important and elevated status in the history of CMPC's overseas oil ventures, uh, because it was really where they gained a lot of their formative uh, experience in terms of uh, oil operations. Uh, Sudan, for them, was an unprecedented opportunity um, in terms of what it could offer for the company, uh, in terms of learning, but also actual oil operations and, of course, uh, profits as well. Uh, now it's become the opposite, um, whereas before you had uh, high opportunity and high yields in, in terms of uh, profits. Uh, and technical know-how. Now, of course, you have high risk uh, and diminishing returns. So a lot has changed uh, in the past decade or two. But back in the 1990s, um, including uh, the activities that we often overlook, which is that those of uh, CNBC's uh, myriad subsidiary companies involved, for example, in uh, constructing the oil export pipeline uh, to, to northern Sudan, uh, this was an extremely important and relatively off-radar uh, oil engagement. Remember, it was the likes of uh, Talisman from Canada that got all the attention from a lot of human rights activists in the West who tended at that point to overlook the importance not just of CNPC but other companies like uh, Petronas. And then once Talisman had left in 2003, 
uh, ONGC from India as well. Uh, Patronus is from uh, Malaysia, correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, Dr. Kalu, do you, do you want to add something? Um, no, I think that was a, that was a very um, comprehensive answer. I think I'm going to let you ask the next question. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> so, Dr. Large, I loved reading your paper, Between the CPA and Southern Independence, China's Post-Conflict Engagement in Sudan, published for the South African Institute of International Affairs, uh, which Thomas Wheeler recommended. And you know, I was reading through it, I was, I was struck by the importance of President Salva Kiir's visit to China in July 2007 as marking a turning point in how China viewed South Sudan, um, namely the, the geography of the oil and the inevitability of the creation of the state. Uh, prior to that, um, prior to the 2005 agreement, uh, China uh, was, was not too sure about what South Sudan meant. And, and this visit this visit really changed that. But, but the thing I, I couldn't quite figure out is, you know, your article pointed out that President Hu Jintao met with President Kier in February 2007, so a few months before this, this trip to Beijing. And no similar understanding of South Sudan took place. Could you speak to how the Chinese Communist Party view the South Sudan referendum prior to July 2007 and what President Kier said that made s such an effect on the party. Uh, am, am I correct in believing that Chinese policymakers did not understand the seriousness of the referendum or the realities of where the oil was located for two years? Uh, this is a fascinating question, uh, absolutely, and I'm afraid you'll have to ask uh, a representative of the Chinese uh, Communist Party for a proper answer. Uh, but I can certainly give you my take, um, because I remember quite clearly um, the sort of sequence of events from even before the CPA and after the CPA, and having visited Juba on quite a regular basis, sort of witnessed a lot of this uh, myself. Um, I would rewind, of course, to the history of, of the last Civil, the North-South Civil War, uh, and the way in which China was seen to support Khartoum widely by many Southern Sudanese, uh, for very good reasons, because of the way in which the oil development was militarized, it involved widespread forcible displacement and, and all sorts of uh, human and environmental uh, destruction. This was a very uh, bloody and brutal uh, process of, of developing oil, which is the sort of um, the, the, the reality of, of that particular history. Um, so in some senses, um, at the CPA, China was not broadly popular at all in southern Sudan. Indeed, there was some resistance to the idea of Chinese peacekeepers. But um, I would rewind you to March 2005, which is when uh, it was Salva Kiir himself. Uh, remember, he was then uh, the number two behind the late uh, Dr. John uh, Garang. Uh, he led a low-key SBLM delegation to Beijing, um, including figures such as uh, the then information uh, Samson minister, Samson Kwajain, and a few others as well. Uh, and they were met by a relatively low-level uh, Chinese representation, uh, as you might expect, given that they were still the, the main official opposition party uh, in southern Sudan, although they had signed the, C the CPA. So in some senses, in theory, they were um, a, a party to this uh, official uh, peace grill. Um, that visit didn't go anywhere. 
but even then there was an interest uh, in what the SPLM uh, general former SPLM general secretary Paganam Mum called a policy of turning enemies into friends. Uh, the next point I'd make is that in February 2007 you have to remember that it was the shadow of Darfur that really dominated those discussions in Khartoum and international attention uh, and Chinese policy as well. So at, at the time, Darfur dominated China's relations with Sudan, and the real center of political gravity in the time in the country, the north-south center of gravity, was overlooked. So what you had, even at the time of the CPA, even before the CPA, is the beginnings of private entrepreneurial Chinese business activity in southern Sudan, uh, first in Juba, but extending to other parts uh, of, of the region as well. And since in many ways, it was Chinese entrepreneurs that pioneered China's outreach to South Sudan. Uh, the government took a long time to catch up. Uh, Salva Kiir effectively forced the issue uh, when he visited uh, Beijing as the president of Southern Sudan this time, uh, not uh, the number two to John Garang, by essentially explaining that, that the at least three quarters of uh, Sudan's oil was in Southern Sudan and that the uh, SBLM's implicit uh, agenda uh, was uh, in favor of voting for succession as per the agreement of the CPA. Um, as to the extent of uh, the Chinese government's knowledge of the provisions of the CPA, uh, I don't think we properly know. But what is evident from their actions is this visit obviously catalyzing uh, the Chinese government's official engagement with uh, South Sudan, which is why in September 2008 uh, they opened the Chinese consulate in Juba and uh, immediately created a new triangular framework of relations between Beijing, Khartoum and Juba, uh, thus really changing official uh, Sudan-China relations in extremely interesting ways. Again, if we think back to the way in which history is used uh, and interpreted by various people, uh, until that point it was Khartoum that had really defined and controlled uh, and mediated China's relations with uh, southern uh, Sudan. And, and China in turn had only really dealt with Sudan's sovereign central government in Khartoum. So to have an independent Juba-Beijing access really re represented a significant uh, change. And what I observed myself is the very relatively rapid growth of knowledge in uh, on the behalf of Chinese officials about independent political reality that was southern Sudan at the time, uh, including um, the SPLM's sort of referendum plans. So there was certainly a relatively uh, late and swift awakening to this political reality, which was then translated into uh, a rather pragmatic uh, political uh, response insofar as China's referendum uh, diplomacy was concerned. But I would really like to uh, know more exactly about the extent of the knowledge um, at, at the time, because there seemed to be quite a dramatic interest uh, difference before and after that visit, which is why it's heralded uh, as the breakthrough visit. Uh, what, what was obvious finally, though, was that uh, those longer term Chinese entrepreneurs who'd started in Juba uh, at the time of the CPA uh, really had a strong grasp on local South Sudanese realities, including political realities. Uh, and in that respect, uh, had a much better uh, earlier understanding of what was happening and what uh, South Sudanese wanted to happen, I think, uh, than uh, their government did as well, which is why uh, in these ways, again, we're actually talking about uh, not 
China as a unitary entity, of course. We're talking about many different uh, forms of Chinese engagement. Um, and Sudan at the time illustrated this perfectly in terms of uh, crisis diplomacy from China vis-a-vis uh, the West in Darfur, as well as this new, uh, much more consequential uh, political, diplomatic, economic uh, relationship with southern Sudan, in which CNPC had to mirror the repositioning of the Chinese government in also conducting its own form of outreach uh, to Juba as well. That's f- phenomenal. C- can you briefly tell us a little more about these private entrepreneurs? What sort of stuff were they doing? And and were these the sort of people that, you know, learn learn the local language, you know, they, they became, you know, South Sudan hands, in, in other words? Yes, in, in, in many ways, uh, absolutely. Um, many, well, it was actually a very small number uh, at this stage, a, a handful, in fact. Um, one filled a truck with uh, bicycles and other uh, commodities and drove from Kampala um, to, to Juba. Um, there were uh, well, a, there was a, a restaurant initially, and then this became uh, two restaurants. Then you had the growth of of hotels and, of course, a small number of Chinese construction uh, companies as well. Uh, many were uh, well, at least one was uh, sent via another African uh, base, so it was sort of negotiated on the continent rather than from China. Uh, but some, as as far as uh, Wenzhou, had spotted the opportunity of this new frontier uh, that was not marked by any kind of competition and as a sort of post-war environment um, was uh, ripe uh, for the taking, uh, which is why what started as a, as a trickle, in a sense, became a flood towards the end of the, uh, the CPA uh, period when uh, the prospect of uh, greater numbers of contracts uh, attracted a, a growing number of all sorts of kinds of uh, small and medium-sized as well as larger uh, Chinese companies to southern Sudan in the hope of of securing more business and pre-positioning themselves for uh, the newly independent uh, country. Uh, at all points, though, I think um, these uh, Chinese entrepreneurs' activities mirrored uh, the way in which p- politics was developing. So um, it was always a good barometer of, of risk appetite and how people felt about the course of the CPA uh, as to whether or not they were uh, upscaling uh, their investments or not in, in Juba and other parts uh, of, of of the south. And suffice to say, it was the Beijing Juba Hotel uh, that first housed uh, China's consulate uh, in Juba um, and thus spoke of this sort of later uh, union of, of this sort of private uh, and the public state uh, diplomacy as well. Tremendous. Dr. Kalu, uh, any, anything you would like to ask? Um, I think that really segues well into the next question, um, which is very hotly debated um, across across Africa, and that's the whole idea of um, Chinese policy of non-interference, um, official policy of non-interference, and um, what do you think South Sudan means for Chinese non-interference? Um, as as I mentioned earlier, there's with regards to Africa-China engagement. Um, there's there's aspects of the relationship that have been um, categorized under the label of neocolonialism or neo imperialism, where there's there are a number there is a faction that strongly believe that the Chinese are actively interfering in African affairs, and then the other side, 
um, concedes the Chinese um, economic um, and diplomatic relations with African states do affect um, African policy. So there is an aspect of indirect interference. Um, how does this play out for South Sudan? Great question. Uh, very interesting and obviously very complex as well, particularly uh, for two initial reasons. Uh, the first, I think, is we have to take a, a dynamic uh, approach to this across time. Uh, Non-interference has meant different things at different times of Sudan-China relations, but also uh, China-Africa relations uh, more generally. <clears throat> I would argue that sort of broadly in, in his macro-historical terms, um, non-interference, uh, when, when China had a strongly ideological engagement with the continent, albeit one that had other forms of involvement and support, um, it was able to sustain this non-interference policy relatively coherent because of the lack of established, embedded, uh, consequential economic or material interests. So what had been a thick ideological relation and a thin material relation is really what gets transformed uh, from the 1990s and we see very well today, namely a very thick material economic relation and a much thinner ideological or political relations in other words, the meaning of non-interference has been stretched such that it appears to have infinite elasticity uh, and is able to cover any conceivable uh, situation according to the official rhetoric. Uh, secondly, I would uh, want to note the difference between intervention uh, and interference. So intervention as a sort of consensual process agreed by the parties concerned uh, is very different from the types of interference in internal domestic uh, African politics that the Chinese government officially uh, claims to be very normatively uh, opposed to in principle. Uh, take UN peacekeepers from China in South Sudan right now, for example. That would be one example where uh, in intervention is legitimate, uh, but interference is quite different. What makes South Sudan um, and today and, and, and Sudan uh, yesterday, as it were, important here, I think, is uh, its role in leading China's oil expansion in the continent at a particular time of uh, a very nasty combination of a long-running north-south civil war in Sudan. And also, let's not forget, because partly of what's happening today, a particularly vicious and destructive south-south civil war in southern Sudan as well, uh, which was precipitated by uh, Riek Moshar's break with John Garang uh, in 1991, which unleashed all sorts of uh, southern violence in the process, but also enabled Khartoum really to open up southern Sudan's oil fields because of the way in which it split the SPLA uh, at the time. When you have a situation of formally claiming non-interference in Sudan's internal affairs, and yet the consequences of your uh, oil intervention are such as to escalate the conflict uh, to deepen suffering as well as of course bring all sorts of material uh, economic benefits to the ruling government the national islamic front in khartoum uh, this is a, a very different situation to anything seen historically and this is where i think there's a difference between non-interference as a doctrine of intention and non-interference as effect so whereas this may have still guided official chinese rhetoric it could not square with the actual on-the-ground structural consequences of a more embedded uh, role. Uh, and that's why I think there's this very uneasy coexistence uh, between uh, the two uh, right now, partly because of these uh, differences between the rhetoric and the sort of structural uh, realities. 
What's interesting, though, is that those in South Sudan who were previously extremely critical of non-interference uh, as something that meant nothing in practice because of what they held to be uh, strong partisan support from China to the government of Sudan and Khartoum, uh, these former critics and, in fact, battlefield enemies of Chinese interests in Sudan have now come around and actually quite like non-interference uh, as an official Chinese government policy. Why? Well, because uh, in the days of the civil war, they, of course, were the, the rebels uh, fighting against the government in Khartoum. Uh, and now, because they've inherited power, and they now govern this newly independent country. They're treated with precisely uh, the principles that China used in its relations with Khartoum. And in some senses, what was previously unpopular and what was opposed by many uh, in southern Sudan um, has seen a, a complete transformation. It's now China's trump card. Uh, it's very popular with the elites uh, in certainly the SPLM around uh, Salva Kiir. Um, and that's because of the simple popularity of China not publicly uh, dictating anything uh, to the SPLM or the government of South Sudan, and, and in, in public terms at least, not uh, telling it what to do or interfering in, in domestic uh, South Sudanese politics. And, and this is where I think uh, the principle is both genuine, it's constitutive, it's, it's real, they, they actually believe this, it's not purely instrumental, but at the same time, of course, it has all sorts of manifestations and negative consequences as well. So it's a very uh, mixed bundle uh, indeed, which is why your point about uh, indirect consequences, I think, uh, is extremely uh, important. Um, I would say finally also that Darfur then and South Sudan now um, has really fed into very vibrant debates within uh, China's academic and, and policy-making communities about the future of non-interference as a foreign policy principle. Uh, can it be sustained in light of these uh, progressive transformations of China's role in the country, particularly in resource-rich states where uh, its involvement has changed massively uh, since the days of, of Maoist uh, foreign policy or 1955 uh, and the Bandung Conference? Um, how can China square a hands-off non-interference approach with investment protection imperatives, for example, uh, and that's why various new ideas about how to move beyond non-interference or indeed to preserve interference, but also adapt to new circumstances are being circulated right now. So in a sense, as South Sudan illustrates today, the Chinese government is between the rock of non-interference and the very hard place of non-indifference. Um, there are widespread expectations that it could and should do much more than just extract oil or promote economic business in South Sudan, but precisely what uh, China can do by way of a political uh, diplomatic security engagement uh, remains uh, to be seen. So if we see this principle in a dynamic uh, sense uh, as subject to change across time within the enduring continuity of this phrase, uh, non-interference, um, I think it provides insights not just into what's gone before and what's happening now, but also into possibilities for uh, the future evolution of this engagement as well. Wow. Well, uh, is there anything else you would like to add before we go on to recommendations? We um, didn't really talk about Dar Darfur that much, and that might be just the, the subject of another podcast into itself. Um, 
but uh but yeah any, anything you you, you want to want to let us know um wow well yes there, there, would, there would be a probably a long list and uh many many podcasts <laughs> but it's, it's probably worth um again if we take the long view um just reflecting that uh, it has always been and will always be uh, the politics of these relations that ultimately matter the most uh, China has a unique history uh, in Sudan um, by virtue of, of things Chinese, but it's by no means the only history in Sudan. In fact, China falls into a longer historical pattern of how external actors relate to the country and operate within the country as well. So rather than always talking about China-Sudan or China-South Sudan, South Sudan relations, I think we should try to flip this in terms of South Sudan-China relations and really encourage ourselves to take a deeper understanding of the political context of, of the Chinese role there and how it relates to others uh, as well. Um, again, uh, one topical illustration of this would be the oil industry in, in South Sudan and the role of CNPC and its other uh, subsidiary companies as well. Um, if China provided a technical learning ground for the company in the 1990s, uh, most recently, it's been a uh, learning ground for uh, security response and for risk management. Uh, and that's why the significant evacuation of uh, Chinese oil workers from South Sudan, largely through uh, Khartoum after 15th of December, is significant um, because uh, it speaks in a sense of um, the, the new phase of China-South Sudan relations, which is much more uncertain. Um, given the combination of diminishing uh, oil reserves in South Sudan uh, and increasing uh, security risks uh, as well. Um, and this is where we see uh, different Chinas operating in South Sudan, the China of the state, of the government, China of the MPC, as well as the, the many Chinas of all sorts of other uh, business interests uh, as well. Um, so there's been quite a dramatic change uh, in recent times, in fact, the past month, where if South Sudan and Sudan had already acquired a reputation for the company as being a risky investment, then this has only been confirmed. Uh, they have been in the line of fire, but they've managed an orderly uh, extraction and thus kept to the Chinese government's aim of being seen to look after the interests of Chinese nationals in risky environments uh, in Africa as well. Um, but one of the, um, the sad aspects of what's happening to now is probably the fact that there had been long-running negotiations between the government of China and the government of South Sudan about a substantial financial loan package, which could, if properly managed, have underwritten a significant sort of economic infrastructural development uh, contribution by Chinese companies in South Sudan, which has been long overdue in, in all of uh, southern Sudan's uh, history. Um, so the impact of what's happened this past month remains to be seen, but it has set back uh, all of these uh, prospects as well as, of course, inflicted huge uh, widespread uh, human suffering in, in the uh, intertwining of, of, of China and other actors' role uh, and the primacy of, of South Sudanese uh, politics. Uh, well... Thank you so much for, for that and, and, and for keeping the, um, the importance of South Sudanese politics and, and agency um, at, at the forefront of, of this discussion and something that I sometimes forget to do is, is highlight African agency. But that's, that's really fantastic. Now we're 
we're, we're going to move on to, to recommendations, and, and Dr. Large, you are a guest, so recommend something. Okay, well, in terms of a well-timed publication that really illuminates uh, a lot of aspects of uh, recent Sudanese history, particularly with regards to oil, the role of China and India, uh, I have to recommend the, the just-published book by Luke Patey called The New Kings of Crude, uh, China, India, and the global struggle for oil in Sudan and South Sudan. Um, this will give you the the everything about uh, about the subject, um, and uh, from both the Sudanese perspective, but also from uh, those of, of China and India. So essential reading, I would say, for trying to understand uh, this relation with South Sudan today. Of course, let's not remember, forget that there are wars in Southern Kordofan, Blue Nile, and and Darfur in Sudan right now as well. So. This will give you everything you need to know to get to grips with uh, the oil industry. Um, I would also recommend the new call for participants of the Rift Valley Institute's Sudan and South Sudan course, which will be in June this year. Um, all the information can be found at www.riftvalley.net, uh, and we welcome applicants from, from everywhere. Uh, it's a good time to, to learn about Sudan and South Sudan um, from people that know. Uh, including uh, Sudanese from different parts of both countries. Uh, and finally, uh, at a time when there is unfortunately too much by way of rumors and deliberate misinformation about what's happening in South Sudan, I would just make a big call for the Sud Institute, which is a research institute in Juba. Uh, they have a website, uh, www.sudinstitute.org. Um, and they release a variety of, uh, of briefing papers and other publications about uh, South Sudan by uh, South Sudanese authors. And I think uh, they provide an invaluable guide to trying to understand and follow uh, what's happening in the country right now. So those would be my uh, recommendations uh, for the moment. Excellent. I will definitely um, link to them. Um, but, but yeah, thank you, thank you so much for, for, for letting us know about that. Dr. Kalu, you're on deck. Um, okay, I have kind of like last time. I have some different um, types of recommendations. Um, the first one is a short video on allafrica.com, which is um, just a news piece about um, South Sudanese refugees that are having to um, seek safety in Central African Republic. And if you've kept up with any of the news um, on Africa, you would know that. Um, conditions in Central African Republic are even more deplorable than they are in South Sudan. Um, so it's really quite um, a, a very real and raw and, and um, I, I guess, a, a very real, real portrayal of how dire the situation is for people on the ground um, in both countries. Um, the other thing I would recommend doing is um, just following the hashtag South Sudan on Twitter. There's so much um, information that's coming out. A lot of it is conflicting and it's very hard to understand um, what's going on. I think it was just earlier today that um, the BBC put out a report about um, a town being um, taken, um, recontrolled, I guess, by the, the government um, forces. And then um, a couple hours later, no, that report's not actually factual. Um, it's very hard for the media to keep up with what's going on in South Sudan. 
And I think that as we've discussed just how complex um, even just the, their, their engagement with China is, the local politics and, and the issues that face people on the ground are even more complex than that. And that's reflected in um, a lot of the tweets under the hashtag um, South Sudan. And finally, my last recommendation is um, a piece that's published by the World Bank. Um, it's not really a piece, it's just kind of a web page. But um, it's a short list of 50 things that you didn't know about Africa. That's exactly what it's called. <laughs> and it's from the World Bank Africa Poverty Reduction and Economic Management Unit. Um, it's very, very quick read. It was very um, incredibly fascinating. And there's a lot of good stuff on there. And there's a lot of stuff that also provoked me as an African um, and as a human to think about um, ways for um, economic development and social development in Africa. Those are my recommendations. Fantastic. I have um, two recommendations, and I don't know really how good they are, but I want to recommend them anyway. So one is um, from, uh, I found online from Want China Times, and it's, it's basically a link to a news story. Um, Abe's Africa visit purely political, says Chinese foreign minister. And and basically it's a short piece that, that quotes the, the Chinese foreign minister uh, uh, Wang Yi and just throwing salt at, uh, at Japanese Prime Minister was it Shinzo Abe and, and his recent visit to Africa and just the things that this minister is saying just cracked me up um, and, and so in terms of the overall China-Africa relationship uh, a lot of people, oh, you know, China has as an economic relationship, but also China likes to talk about South-South solidarity and 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 things of that nature. But but the level at which this this minister is talking about how bad Japan is versus how good China is, just I found hysterical, for for lack of a better term. Uh, uh, Ch China's relations with Ethiopia are pure altruism, for for example. Um, and you know every government, every government you know has stuff like this, has stuff like this. I'm not I'm not highlighting the Chinese, but but just for um, a sense of 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 some of the the, the funny things that can that can come out of studying China Africa relations, read this story because I, I found it to be really really um, really really um, funny. Um, and then also uh, in 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 terms of. In terms of South Sudan, you guys have, have everything, I, th I think, pretty well covered. So I'm going to recommend something really off the wall here. I'm going to recommend uh, the Flashman Papers, which is a series of historical novels by George MacDonald <laughs> Frazier. And let me just tell you, these are some terrible books for me to recommend as a historian who went to graduate school in the U.S. I mean, like... Um, I mean, it's it, like issues of race, class, and gender. I mean, like every kind of ism. Yeah, they're really terrible. Having said that, they're really fun to read, and um, and there and and some of the and it, basically this this guy um, uh, Henry Flashman, who was uh, I think a fake character from Tom Brown's school days, travels around 19th century Europe and 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 Africa and Latin America. Does he cover? Yeah, he covered Latin America for a bit and, and Asia, and just goes to every major historical kind of thing that a English person could go to. And it's really interesting, and there are there are some connections to Sudan. So um, I'm I'm going to recommend that 
um, uh, um, to, to these kind of lighthearted recommendations. Before we sign off, how do people find you on the interwebs, Dr. Large? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share? Um, well, um, I am recently uh, converted to, to Twitter. Um, and I would agree completely with the comments about following uh, self done on Twitter. So I have a hashtag of uh, Dan TM Large. Um, but my only proper website is really uh, sedanarchive.net, uh, which is the, the more historic uh, website, shall we say. Yes. I, I just found you on Twitter like yesterday. I didn't even know you were on until I, I found you. So. Um. Uh, th thank you for, for being so accessible that way. Um, and I'll also throw in Rift Valley in there, at least in, in terms of a link to find you too. Um, Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? Um, well, before I do that, I, wanna, I was going to say two things. I was going to welcome Dr. Lige to the Twitter sphere. I'm also new there. Um, it's been fun getting Thanks. to getting familiar with that technology. Um, one of the things that I forgot, I forgot one of my recommendations. It's terrible. I feel awful. Um, it was a great little article that someone had sent. Um, um, it was a blog post from a more contemporary blog of, um, it's the best way to describe it. it I know a lot of the bloggers that, that blog for this blog, it's called Blasian Narrative, are... Um, Yes, black and Asians is the, is the best way to explain that. But um, one of the bloggers blog, um, wrote about an experience that she had um, working at an Asian embassy in Nigeria and um, dealing with anti-black racism um, from the particular Asian embassy. It was quite fascinating. Um, the piece is definitely thought-provoking, and it's on um, thisisafrica.me. Winslow will post the... The link, but um, even just well, that particular blog and some of the other um, things on Blasian narrative are interesting. Blasian narrative is a little bit more contemporary than um, I think most of what we typically recommend on um, on calories and rice. But um, it's it's an interesting place to learn about real life um, within those two different cultures. And um, I can also be found. On the interwebs at my here's my blog site because Winslow sent it to me and chemkali.wordpress.com and also in calriesriceblogspot.com for my um, infrequent blogs and my Twitter handle is at nchemekali. I um, I tweet about all sorts of things, a lot of news, sports, and um, other slightly nerdy things that catch my attention, including transportation. If you were on my um, if you were on my feed any time recently. Yeah, you were at this uh, transportation conference for the World Bank. Yeah, it was, it was lots of fun, very interesting. I learned a lot of things and made lots of new friends. I will, I will, I will retweet some of the stuff you put out there. Um, I myself can be found on caloriesrice.blogspot.com and my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. I tweet about China African news, um, a bunch of random stuff, and, and a bunch of stuff that I find personally interesting. So Dr. Kalu's thing on transportation, I think will be really cool. Do you have a uh, picture? Who, who, who was the, the closing speaker? Um, 
Oh, Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh. Who is um, known for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Is that right? Yes. No. Yes. Wait, yes. I think yes. I think that's Dr. the name Large of it. is... Um, yes. Yes. Anyway, he's a doctor. He confirmed super it. awesome, amazing um, <laughs> actress. Just very well um, internationally recognized. Apparently, he's a global ambassador for road safety, and um, I and I, it's very important because every hour over a hundred people die um, all over the world from um, traffic accidents, and a lot of it is preventable. So. Um, Let's try to keep people safe and get our, our politicians and our, our governments to implement policies that protect the, the general um, public. That's all I've got. That, that was a, a wonderful thing to say and a very earnest, uh, earnest statement. Um, and, uh, and, um, and, and yeah, very, very true. Um, well, uh, that's... Sorry to, to, to get lost in, in all this stuff, but man, today's episode was awesome. We would like to thank Dr. Large for joining us this, well, now it's the afternoon. Um, this afternoon slash evening, his time. I actually thought you were in Nairobi, not Budapest. So that's where I got my, my terrible screw up. I, I started trying to record the podcast like two hours before the, um, the actual time because I'm an idiot. Um, and I, I made Dr. Kalu wake up early as well. So, but Dr. Large, thank you so much for, for helping us out and for sticking with us despite uh, my screw up. Um, we'd like to thank African Development Jobs and the African Daily. Uh, this podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Um, still waiting to hear back from the BlackBerry Network. You know, listen to us. Uh, apparently, you're supposed to like rate us and like us. So, whatever can get us more fame, do it. And, uh, and yeah, any suggestions or anything for the show, let us know. We are listening. Um, and we would like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.